When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Terry Newman, who is an author and a writer and the founder of Rapport Magazine. It's an online magazine. She's also a lecturer at McGill Caper in Montreal and has focused for many years on media studies and media criticism. I discovered her a few years ago writing for Quillette and other off-the-well-beaten-path magazines and was always enlightened and inspired by what she had to say and the insights that she brought to bear against various issues. In this conversation, we talk about her take on the Canadian government's take on journalism and freedom and why that's becoming increasingly more problematic and why the Canadian citizenry doesn't seem to care all that much about their loss of freedoms at an alarming rate. And we also just talk about media in general and her work at large. Other than that, I think let's just start the show. Without further ado, here is Terry Newman. Okay, there we go. I gotcha. You're in good hands, Terry yes, Newman. Yes, uh, seasoned pro at this. <laughs> I am seasoned. See, I just waited. That's why I was waiting for years, <laughs> like almost three years to the three date. Years. <laughs> three years to the date, December 10th, when you first reached out to me. Really? And December 12th. Yes, I look wow. back, and so it's like three years and two days. My, have we grown? I know <laughs> so much has happened. I mean, so much has happened if you're on, if you leave Twitter for a week, right? So um, three yeah. years. Yeah. A lot. There was a pandemic. There was a, there was a pandemic. There was a Trudeau coup. Faux coup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the journals really, really wanted it to be our January 6th moment because they really, really want to be like America, but also hate America because they're better than America. Are they, That's though? That's Canada for you in a nutshell. <laughs> so that they have uh, some sort of uh, nationalistic penis envy kind of thing going on? Yeah. So, I mean... The Canadian identity, unfortunately, is uh, built on, seemingly built on uh, being better or nicer than Americans, or so I've noticed. Yeah. That's what too many people in Canada have kind of, you know, centered it around. That and hockey, but not so much hockey anymore, because we don't really have hockey night in Canada the way we used to. So, yeah. Because, really? huh. yeah, it's it's really interesting. And you You've been studying media. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been like kind of studying it, but like on the go, on the fly, like a work study program kind of thing. Because now I am media. Yeah. But the, the way that it's been operating over the last five years specifically, probably more like 15 or 20, is becoming more and more egregiously propagandistic or regime uh, 
regime media. And then in Canada, your media is state funded. And during the last election cycle, your government or the people in charge granted under certain sorts of stipulations, it seems like a huge wad of cash to the media companies, right? But only certain ones, right? Yeah. So they designated some people, you know, as official sources, which is, you know, in itself problematic, uh, having a government do that, right? So always CBC has been a nationally funded, you know, small tax contribution by Canadians to to fund it, um, despite whether or not, you know, it's failing uh, in terms of television or news or radio or whatever is going on with it. But this uh, push more recently to fund uh, outlets outside of CBC is, is pretty new. And so, yeah, so they, they're they designating, uh, you know, approved outlets. And uh, recently they've kicked out Black Locks out of the parliamentary um, forum. Yeah, Wait, so and they're, they're completely independent, Black Locks reporter. Um, and, you know, they, they dig up all the documents and all the files. And uh, apparently they had an officer walk them out. So things are getting really, really bad here. And the problem with Canada is... Canadians are so, because of what they think of the United States, they're, they hear words like free speech and they think it's a bad thing. Uh, it, it's so, it's so insane. I mean, for, for an American to, to be here, it would be absolutely insane for them. But, you know, um, some words have just kind of taken on these alternate meanings um, just because, you know, maybe, you know, Trump has used them or whatever. It, that means now that it's our problem and we shouldn't care about these things. So it's, it's a real mind. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah, so even furthermore, I, I was just, I was scrolling through your timeline and I didn't really get into this, but I have heard rumors that they're kind of starting to regulate news, regulate facts, regulate, like, so it's not even just funding and kicking people out, but now they're going to start to regulate. And how do you do that? Yeah. You guys go in China, you guys are kind of basically going full China, right? Well, it's, I'm, I, I wouldn't say it's full China yet. Uh, but what I would say is that Michael Geist is a professor who's uh, really prolific, has a substack, knows all about these bills and exactly uh, what's going on with them, but they're trying to regulate all kinds of content, user content. So if I started a podcast, they would, they would try to regulate, uh, you know, smaller people too. Um, and that means, what does that mean? See, yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's going to eventually affect what we can say, what'll be misinformation, um, whether or not we're taxed in certain ways, stuff like that. So, and we, we also have a history also of our content, you know, CanCon, Canadian content. So uh, the government uh, tries to regulate uh, our Netflix, what can come here. If Netflix is going to be here, they have to fund a certain amount of Canadian shows. So there's all these different levels from news to what we can watch, to what we can listen to on the radio. Um, yeah, which I think is, um, I don't even think NPR is even close to anything like that operates anything close to anything like that and, but, uh, so and that's your the, puzzle but yeah. so i kind of understand from a like public works kind of uh, point of view to fund or to stress the funding of canadian shows like that's an economic kind of tariff on media uh but it goes beyond that right and so what are they what are they regulating what do they not want people to say 
or speak about. I mean, probably the most obvious example would be COVID and vaccines, right? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not really sure about the, the the nitty-gritty details of what they're going to be policing, but I I'd be concerned. Um, you know, it's more it's more of guys type of thing. But the way that things are going, um, if you've been watching Canada and if you watch the convoy, you'll know that our government used the Emergencies Act and shut down um, the bank accounts of people who may have contributed money to the truckers here. Um, and so, I mean. We're, we're getting to the point where if the current government, anyway, if, you know, news is, is uh, against the current government, I would be more and more worried about whether or not we're going to uh, either be penalized for talking just openly about things or even asking questions, you know. Um, yeah, it's a bad state. Well, okay, so this is very... Uh... Orwellian, perhaps <laughs> Kafkaesque, but what are your thoughts on the media landscape in a regime like this? Like, how do what is the shape of media, and what's the shape of co public consciousness in like this kind of pseudo liberal, post liberal environment? And plus, media is so porous; you can't really stop it. So it's kind of hubristic that they think they could stop it, but I guess they can punish people for that. As long well, as they, I think, I think they don't even have to, unfortunately. Um, you know, as somebody who went to school, university, as a mature student after I had my kids and uh, went to university and I understand how it works, you don't even have to. It's not like the government has to tell a journalist here to have a certain opinion. Before the journalists, the journalists are all coming up in J schools, right, which are attached to the universities. And so they share uh, the norms and the habitus and the goals of the universities and their, their mandates and their targets and stuff like that. And so by the time somebody who usually graduates from these programs gets to a media place and interviews, they've already kind of been formed and molded. So, and I'm sure that anybody that doesn't, that they find suspicious just gets gatekeeped out, right? So every Canadian that got news about the, the convoy got the majority of their news from a designated news source. And so all of those designated news sources, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I was there the first weekend of the protest and I talked to people, the disparity between the coverage of what was happening and the claims and accusations that were made that didn't have to be proven. And what I saw on the ground were just, it was, it was atrocious. And it seemed to me as somebody with an MA in sociology and a little bit of knowledge about the history of media and how they treat protesters and groups, it seemed incredibly classist. So, you know, I think that Canadians consciousness around the media uh, is they kind of, they trust it too much. Canadians are, have a strong trust of government. And that way, they're very different than Americans. Americans are very, you know, they question their government. They, they question everything. They think about things like freedom and democracy. Yeah. You need to really think about democracy. <laughs> We're loyalists, right? Okay, loyalists. <laughs> there, there seems yeah. to be, I, I, it might be harsh to say laziness, but uh, mm. at least a, a relaxed stance towards tyranny in a way. 
Well, definitely it's an authority. There's an authoritarianism. So when, when Justin Trudeau got up and he, you know, he said, you know, they're not like you Canadians who are the good Canadians yeah. and so on and so forth and kind of set, you know, Canadians who might have questions about mandates or uh, just think it's over, uh, you know, overbearing to, to ask this, to do this to people, to start cutting them off from going to stores or to work or, yeah. you know, whatever it is um, that, Unfortunately, you know, because of the nature of, of, of Canadians, it, it, that didn't seem like a big thing to so many people because it's just not, uh, if you go to university, it's kind of conditioned, you're kind of conditioned to believe that um, in a kind of com communitarianism that, okay. that doesn't really exist in the United States and kind of conditioned to trust your government a bit more. And you're tr conditioned to trust academics even though they may really not have um, an academic, and, and you know, uh, journalists are kind of central Canadian journalists, which, who really rec represent Ontario and Quebec interests, as opposed to rural and uh, different areas and people who work service jobs. So, yeah. Is is there going to be a is the trucker protest shows the glimmers of a in state out state kind of duopoly or not duopoly because only one. Uh, parties in power, but they, there's these two consciousness. There's the rural, probably, and then the dissident intellectuals too, and then the good people, right? And their citadels, <laughs> right? Controlling everything. And is that sustainable? I don't. Th I feel. I, I do feel a little bit of a pendulum switch. You know, I feel. I mean. As far as the media's ratings in terms of, you know, streaming CBC Gem or any of the CBC shows and stuff, I don't think they have very good ratings. I don't think they're very popular. Um, I think that there are some people who are now thinking a little bit more about um, some of these conversations about the truckers, uh, you know, they were accused of burning an apartment building down. Really? Yeah, they were. It, it, Purely uh, with know, horns. Yeah. Like some sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, and it was somebody with purple hair. Like, yes, all truckers have purple hair. Um, but they were also accused, and this was walked back, um, of, of going into a soup kitchen and getting violent, but and in which the soup kitchen got a ton of donations you know if it wasn't a soup kitchen i would say this is very problematic but yeah. um you know nobody had to be brought in it didn't have to be proven that it was a trucker and it turned out it was just some words that were said maybe and maybe not even by a trucker so it's almost as if the the, the accusation just stands and it holds here in canada oh you know these people are awful um but i do think uh, there are more people coming out of universities now that are noticing some of this stuff that are kind of breaking away from it. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to break away from it because if you don't go with it, it's not good. And I think there's more journalists that are a few people that I know that are coming into the schools that are uh, a bit more questioning, but uh, you know, it's really effective. What's uh, the way our country is kind of built and kind of, it, it kind of works very easily for somebody. Whereas if somebody's tried to do this stuff in the United States, uh, you know, all, all hell would break loose, you know. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, I kind of admire that about Americans. <laughs> well, I mean, you know? <laughs> they got away with a lot over the response to COVID, with the lockdowns mm-hmm. in LA, but it was mostly blue areas. And again, it was a classist thing. You know, I remember there was a video surfaced of this restaurant here whose business was dying because of all these restrictions, uh, filming this movie setup where there's this huge movie comes into town and takes over this block and they don't have to follow any of the rules, right? Mm -hmm. This multi-billion dollar, you know, multi-million dollar production. Whereas the, like the, the, the poor people kind of, the middle class specifically is getting squeezed because then you have this surgence of uh, homelessness and that problem is kind of not really dealt with either in a way that deals with the problem. Um, so the people in the middle and then the rural people, there might be some sort of like urban, rural uh, unity there, but it seems like the channels of communication and then just the worldview is kind of so different. But I don't really understand how how that operates in Canada, but it kind of seems like Canada is just one big blue state in a way. <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, and I think... Uh, about the drug problem, I mean, more people, uh, more people had died of overdoses during the pandemic than before. Like just very, very quickly, like the rate just just skyrocketed because of despair, right? You know, you're just like, yeah. you already bored. got it bad, and yeah. things don't look like they're going to get better. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, also all the places, you know, homeless people, like metros were closed. If you were living outside, you couldn't go into metro. Like in Montreal, I think our metro closed for months, right? Because they locked us down. We were locked down the longest, and we had the like, strongest uh, rules against people. And our and our premier try was about to bring in a tax to the unvaccinated, but he realized, I guess, that that was very unpopular, yeah. and saw the convoy protest and changed things very quickly. Okay. Um, but we were we were locked down um, the most. I was working at a factory at some point, and like I had a night shift, and really? uh, the cops could literally pull you over, and you had to have a slip showing permission that you were going to work. And there was some articles like cops were pulling people over and doing stupid shit, like looking in their lunch bags too. I'm like, this is they were going to people's houses and removing families from each other, like. What? Yeah. And yeah, people but, are cool with this. Uh, no, no, no. And I okay. think Quebec, like Quebecers are, okay, so talking about the difference, Canada is not all a blue state. That's yeah. how I got it. Um, so the French are different, right? That most of the French do not like the woke stuff in schools and universities. So the French have that about them because um, they want to be able to express themselves. So I'll give that to them. They also have language police here. So, <laughs> so you take the good with the bad. But also, you know, Alberta. Uh, is uh, a bit more conservative, so uh, yep. prairies, um, you know, and Nova Scotia is pretty left in Halifax because it's, you know, five universities in the city. So the, the closer you are to a lot of universities, the more urban you're going to be, the more yeah. you probably think that the word conservative means evil. Um, 
you know, stuff like that. But the more rural you are, the more like you have to, uh, you know, that you have to drive somewhere to work or you have to use a truck to work or um, you're, you do things with your hands, you're a service worker. Yeah, the more, the more likely I think in Canada you are to have uh, uh, more conservative views, but also in the cities and in the suburbs, I mean, the more, uh, the more religious you are, right? Uh, so many, many immigrants here are more, more likely yeah. to be conservative, even though people in universities don't seem to understand that either. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're a mix you're mutt. It sounds like class class wise. So you work in a factory, but you're super smart. You're you're an intellectual. What's your general background? Or um, well, thanks. Um, well, I'm actually uh, I'm from Cape Breton, which is a little island in Nova Scotia. Oh, and I actually uh, was raised by my grandparents. So uh, I had a father who died of opioid overdose that I never actually met. Who I'm actually doing a doc about. Um, but I, my grandfather worked for CN for trains. I went on the trains with him. So most of my friends, their parents worked in coal mines or, or steel workers or in the fisheries. So I've been on fishing boats. I, I know what it's like to labor. And I have, a, I have a, an outsider's perspective. When I, come, when I came to Montreal and I went to university, you know, it was, let me just say, it was pretty easy to see the implicit biases in my professors who would talk about, you know, farmers or oil workers, you know, many Cape Bretoners went out to out West to work in oil fields because we, our economy shut down in every other industry. And, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, somebody who's gone to try to feed their family and get a good job is doing something bad, you know, just like they're evil. And it was just all over the place. So, yeah, so that's my background. What, and, what drew uh, you to university then? What was your decision-making process there? Well, after I had my kids, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to university. I haven't had, I haven't gone to university. And uh, I decided to go into sociology because I care about things like class. <laughs> because I grew up uh, in poverty. Um, in high school, I like bummed at the end of the lunch line to eat. So really? I, I huh. have no... Yeah, I'm not a stranger to like a lot of social problems. And so I did my undergrad sociology. It was pretty good. Like I didn't sense uh, a lot of the things that were. What years? Happening. Um, so I ended in 2015, my, okay. my undergrad, I think. So yeah. Yeah. top of my class, uh, 4.01 GPA, really? sociology, honors. Yeah. And then I won a SHRP, which is a very prestigious government um, funding award for my uh to do a master's thesis on uh candidate controversies i was interested in them so the inter mm. internet and uh people who are trying to shame candidates by using twitter um and then i so i went into media studies for my ma and i did all the coursework and uh that's uh i wrote my piece through the looking glass just before doing that um my Colette piece, I guess that's when I kind of, people would have started to know me online. And, you know, my experience was that my co-students were wanting to cancel people like Kurt Vonnegut and Margaret Atwood. And I was really disturbed by it. Yeah. And, you know, even saying that I shouldn't use the word witch hunt in my thesis because of uh, apparently not understanding anything about McCarthyism, the fact that it's a political term, but it, you know, it was used against women. 
you know. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, sexist, yeah, <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, just, and you know, my professors were pretty feckless and, you know, um, you know, thought that Joe Rogan was a white supremacist and, and I didn't, and I was like, okay, well, I have to skip, I have to leave ship here, and I went to sociology, so I basically have two MAs, so one in media studies and one in sociology. So I finished my stuff there. And uh, yeah, and so I've been writing uh, for Colette and, uh, you know, a few other places, uh, freelance. Yeah, the, the thing about media studies, and I noticed this, the, one of the vectors of the trouble at Evergreen was a media studies professor. <laughs> And it's yeah. it's one thing to have a bias in media studies, but it seems like everybody in media studies has drank the Kool-Aid so much that they don't know that they're spewing propaganda. They don't even know how captured they are. So they can't, how could they possibly be teaching anything other than just more vomit, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is my experience. When I went into media studies, uh, first of all, it was overwhelmingly female. Um, and I'm, I guess I, maybe I won't go into the feminization of these things. And well, that's fine. I, was that, it very but, mean girls? Cause that's what I've, I've noticed. Mean, just, there's a, I would say just not just lack of rigor, but like a, an emotional kind of basis to the content. Uh, but it was not what I expected at all. I thought it was going to be the stuff I was doing in sociology and media studies and sociology. I, I was doing it early in my undergrad. I was interested in media. Yeah. Um, yeah. We didn't even do Neil Postman. Like, how do you not do Neil Postman? And there was no one to really supervise my work who cared about uh, discourse on the internet, which seemed to be such an obvious thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah. So it, uh, but my, my close students, were overwhelmingly from um, art history and gender studies. And, you know, it just became kind of, uh, I, I became aware very quickly that it wasn't a meritocracy. It was just credentialism. It's just like, you just go to the classes, you do the work. You don't have to be very uh, insightful. You're, you don't have to, have to be able to think critically. Um, I had done an, uh, almost a minor in uh, philosophy in my undergrad with uh, philosophy of science and uh, analytical philosophy and ethics and stuff like that, which I credit for making me a really good researcher and being able to think and, and see my own biases and say, oh, you know, on the other hand or whatever. But these people couldn't do that stuff. And it was, uh, you know, kind of scary. And at one point, um, I remember the thing happened with Lindsay Shepard and uh, Jordan Peterson, and they, they were so sure of all this stuff and they hadn't even seen the, the, the talk. You know, and so what really worried me is that, you know, the university was just uh, pushing out people like this who couldn't think critically, profs that couldn't think critically. And then just the system just kind of keeps renewing uh, that kind of you know bad thinking. And so, you know, after my finish my MA, I'm just like, you know, I could do a Ph.D., but why would I do that? You know, it's going to be how, and, uh, huh. you know, why would I do that? <clears throat> well, but yeah but. sociology what's that or how do, that's, it seems like a big messy pile of books in my mind so <laughs> what are the principles for you that you uh, found useful or that you returned to when you think of sociology 
Um, there's a, unfortunately, it's, you know, it's gotten a bad name and, you know, there's, there's two sides of, uh, there's two sides of sociology, more than two sides actually, but I mean, there's, you know, you can use stats and data to look at things. Um, but also you can, you can think of things in, I'm sure you're already familiar with like power analysis, but you can also think in things like, you know, you know, Foucault and all those types of uh, analysis, Marx, whatever, but you can also think of things as in symbolic interactionism, which is basically people have power and they use that power in a system. Um, they may have limited power and so on and so forth. Uh, but you can also think of people like, uh, the more traditionalists like Durkheim, who tried to explain behavior in terms of uh, uh, religion and ritual. And he's actually really useful to explain a lot of the things that are going on or interactionist theory like Randall Collins or Goffman, uh, Irving Goffman, who was Canadian. And uh, he, he pretty much um, came up with a ton of terms around how people behave, uh, dramaturgy, impression management, like, which is basically a forerunner to virtue signaling. So there are people who look at, uh, there are definitely some interesting theorists in sociology and there's a way to do sociology, which um, isn't, doesn't have to be, you know, somebody coming in and saying, this is the way you live and this is the way you should live. And this is the way things should be done. Um, uh, if, if sociology is done effectively, what, what should be done is people should say, you know, here's this person's theory and this is this person's theory and let's look at it and let's talk about it, right? Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately... Well, what's the application, though? It, it, basically, sociology is the art of ruling people. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The art of what? Ruling people. It's the art of power. Hmm. Is it not? The study of society. The study of society. Well, okay. I think, what else is society (laughs) but, like, a power structure, right? That either functions or doesn't function or functions in certain ways. Uh, or look, I, I think that people would use, there are people who use theories and there are sociologists, people who have been called sociologists who use theories and then people then try to use those theories to um, co-op language. And uh, Wait, What do you mean co-op language? I mean, I think that there are people who may use theories of power in sociology and may have... Uh, taken ideas from them and have successfully used them to try to take over discourse in society. But that's not what sociology is. It's the study of society. It's supposed to be the study of society. Okay. Well, so, you know, it could be, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, just to be clear, I use power <laughs> in a, a moral sense. It's just, yeah. Managed behavior or, you know, it, it means a lot of different things. I don't think that it's, bad in and of itself it's either ordered or it's chaotic right but it 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 just is and so sociology or society is just formed out of that i go to a job i have a boss at the job i do a transaction like there's behaviors and then i i am in charge of people at my job i have Mm -hmm. power over the situation to the degree that i do have power of this situation but 
getting the kids that I work with to understand that I have the authority. I have to, you know, make certain maneuvers and then I don't have to do anything as long as I, I establish the power of this right. thing that I'm doing, then we can do the thing that we need to do. But the power is there. It's just like, I, I'm, I'm the one who has it and I don't need to use right. it all the time because I'm not obsessed with having the power. I just want to get my job done. Right. And go on to the other thing. So I, d I didn't right. mean to say that sociology as the art of ruling people is, is a good or a bad thing. I just think if you're studying society, what you're studying is power obedience and disobedience right that's only one aspect of it you could be you could be studying what i'm saying is you could be studying how people just behave it, it's almost like a, a psychological level like how um you know i don't know if smokers are outside and they're 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 handing their cigarette butt around or something like that it's like an interaction ritual it doesn't have to be about power what i'm saying is the power uh, axis of sociology is just one axis okay okay yeah that's what I meant. But okay. you're right. There are there are people that look at like the returns and the you know the the mark stuff and that thing. But I mean, it doesn't have to be. Um, that's only one axis of it. And, and Durkheim is not like that at all. So uh, Durkheim. Can we venture into Durkheim a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So what's so Durkheim deal? Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know Durkheim uh, is a you know, would be great to use to explain uh, how people are behaving uh, performatively online as well, because uh, he looked at a tribe in um, Australia uh, that hadn't been observed, I believe, and he uh, studied them and came up with theories about how people organize their societies around totems, you know, what do you worship, you know? And if we worship, you know, and society right now has decided we're going to worship putting pronouns in our bio. You know, what is the use of that? Why are they doing that? They're doing that performatively yeah. to signal things, right? So more like a, in, a, in a ritualistic way to say that I am part of an in-group, you know? So it's almost a critique of these power things. So uh, it's a critique of, of how systems in society may use power or yeah. It's not may not always be a critique. It might be this is how they function and they have cohesion. Um, he he came from a long line, I think, of seven rabbis, right? So he was the first to step out and kind of look at how why people um, who were religious um, were less likely to commit suicide in the early nineteen in the early uh, early part of the century. So yeah, he was uh, he, he was uh, very interesting and not you know. Yeah. Um, what most people would think of in sociology. So looking at the rise of this thing, I wish there was another word, but I just get tired of the next word um, that comes along. Wokeness is the best term because critical social justice just talks about the theories, but wokeness is like the, the, the theories and the sets of behaviors that we see that, that have kind of just emerged and have a particular, um, uh, ridiculousness to them or like almost like this alien thing going on with them with the you know the colors and the pronouns and the performative and the way that people will say things that are egregiously just off base or off putting or rude or mean or nasty or murderous and yet it's all okay because it's all for the good you know this <laughs> they have it, it a lot of critiques have called it a religion mm -hmm. 
I want to go beyond that, but when you first saw it, like seeing these art students and these gender studies uh, students and then the media studies department, did you kind of see it from the outside? And how did you start to, did you start to analyze that? Yeah. <laughs> and what, and what, what, what are some of the useful or tools that you use to analyze this thing? Well, whenever you're looking at the university itself, you have to think of it as an institution, right? Okay. So this is also an analysis, a sociological analysis. So an institution has different levels. There's different stakeholders. They have different interests, varied interests, right? So if you're a professor and you're at the front of the class and you're nervous about your students who are very left, right? You are going to perform and behave in such a manner that they approve of probably to a fault, like to an extent, like, you know, an insane extent that seems completely unreasonable, right? Doing that because of economic interests, right? You're afraid that they're going to complain about you or they're going to mob you or, um, you know, something like that, or that your boss is going to whatever. But where does this come from, right? Besides the theory, it comes from the fact that the university behaves like a corporation, treats students as customers. So because it treats students as customers, they're coming out with all these, you know, protections, you know, tests to make sure that people know what sexual harassment is in schools, all these different things. They're really just to protect against litigation, right? To protect against litigation and so that they can advertise it on their pages to say that they are a safe place to be. But you can't look at what's happening in the university by looking at only one piece of university, right? You have to understand um, what on the corporate level and the administration, administrative level, what's happening. Uh, individual professors' economic interest of staying employed. Um, I'm not defending any insane behavior that teachers do, and I certainly have. Uh, I have integrity, and I know. I I think a lot of them just don't know how to run a class properly without behaving like that, and. Uh, and uh, aren't confident enough to do it to be prepared. But when the students come into play, you know, the students are not unaware that they're paying, especially in the United States, ridiculous tuition fees to attend these places, right? And they know it's just a hoop that they're jumping through, right? It's not a meritocracy, it's just credentialism. They're paying for that piece of paper, yeah. right? And if you're making their day bad, they're gonna, they're, they, they know that the school caters to them. So what you have is a hot mess. <laughs> Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The um are you f- familiar of what some people call cringe? What is it? Cringe? Cringe, yeah. It's it's a sociological phenomena where somebody acts ridiculous but unaware. They're they're very sincere <laughs> in their behavior, okay. but from an outsider's point of view, especially like you're looking at tick okay. Uh Libs of TikTok is a huge account and yeah. it posts a lot of woke cringe stuff and but it it, it's not just cringe you have these for whatever reason you have video after video after video of kindergarten teachers and grade school teachers and high school teachers talking about how they're going to teach the kids sexuality and they're going to teach the kids this whole armada of sexual behaviors right and yet which which is just it it just seems like something that you wouldn't want to advertise, but they're okay advertising that. But on top of that, they're all ridiculous people. They're, they're mm-hmm. dressed ridiculousness or ridiculously. They're emotive, histrionic. Um, 
it seems like they're detached, but also it, it might be the case that there's some sort of virtue signaling going on, but, but it's still cringe. It's just, it just it aesthetically perturbing, right? But these people have lost their sense of aesthetic or of proportionality yeah. in a way because they're insulated or some, there's something that they're gravitating to where they have to perform more and more ridiculously. Do you, yeah. do you understand what I'm trying to yeah. describe? And do you have any? Yeah, well, I mean, you have to, to keep, to continually differentiate yourself. You have to get louder and more colorful. And why, why would you have and, to continually? Well, I mean, I mean, they're doing it because they're girls, right? So once you, once you're online or you have a TikTok account, you brand yourself, right? And to be louder and louder and to scream to the rafters, you, you find various ways to do that stuff. What I've noticed about all these people who do these types of things that, um, and I have to say to us, it communicates as cringe because we have a, a sensor for that kind of affect, but for them, it doesn't communicate as cringe and it doesn't communicate as cringe because they, they believe what they're doing right? They believe it, right? And so because they believe it and some people around them believe it, um, they don't have a, a sense for it. Um, hmm. So, I, I mean, what disturbs our affect doesn't disturb, disturb their affect in their groups. But as to the getting louder and the more whatever, that's that to me, that's a branding technique. And so when a, a, a teacher like say a kindergarten teacher goes online and they uh, want to be seen. Obviously it's just like being on Twitter, you know, you want the likes, you want the retweets, you want the shares, um, you know, you, you want more people to mention you or you are going to get a, maybe an, an article or something like that. And so to do that, um, the tactics are very much the same as, you know, uh, even your, your YouTube channel or not that you dress up in colorful, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there's yeah. tactics, right? Yeah. Um, I haven't resorted, I've seen you resort to like clown costumes yet, but you know, maybe. Uh, no, I had to, I, I, <laughs> actually the, the first couple of years of my channel, I was wearing funny hats all the time. So there was a. Right. Right. But that. what I'm trying to say is that you've noticed this probably with other podcasters or tweeters or yeah. so on. It's branding. Right. Yeah. And so the, the ridiculousness of it for me is that you know, they shouldn't be talking to kindergartners about this. You know what I mean? Um, this is, um, uh, I think when I had sex ed first time, I was in grade five or six. And I think that's pretty normal because that's the time where uh, a girl you yeah. know, gets prepared and the guys are doing stuff. And that's where my friends who were gay knew they were gay. Do you know what I mean? And uh, so it makes sense to talk about that kind of stuff then. Um, but there's no need at all for people to be introducing um, alternative identities to children. Um, because you take something um, and you make it, um, you make it a possibility that wasn't a possibility before. If it was gonna happen, it would happen anyway. Do you know what I mean? Um, but to, to bring it to a kindergartner, like that, that just seems absolutely absurd. And uh, as you, if you took a look at my last uh, Substack about um, how CBC treated Chanel, because you had Chanel on your show, right? Um, and some other trustee candidates who were concerned about stuff like this. Yeah. Um, you would see that in Canada, um, I think the privacy policy allowing Ontario schools to kind of affirm this stuff without parental knowledge and without medical um, uh, medical experts weighing in on it um, has been around 
long enough to affect the numbers that have shown the increase in stats. So I think that's really, really interesting. Increase like we can't in obviously stats. say for sure. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you but, mean increase in stats? Like there's suddenly more statistics are just lying around, popping out of everywhere? Um, no, the increase in stats of the numbers uh, of people identifying as non-binary or trans. Yeah. So before it entered the school system, I can't say that that is uh, cause, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't try to jump on things like that because I can't say, but I can say that um, increased knowledge or susceptibility to possible different possibilities is obviously one of the factors. And I point that out in the piece um, yeah. that talks about the treatment of Chanel and uh, the other candidates. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The piece, by the way, which is waiting for a response from a CBC investigation that's due today. Okay. Because uh, as somebody who teaches research methods, um, having the correspondence from the candidates and, and seeing how uh, the journalist handled these candidates in this story, I think uh, he was not fair or diligent and broke several uh, ethical standards and defamed them for a trustee election. So I'm waiting to hear back about okay. CBC's response. So. When that behavior becomes illegal or unethical, there's still a uh, mechanism or a process to hold people to account when they are so ideologically possessed that they end up defaming somebody or, or lying. <laughs> we will see. So basically, uh, in my complaint, I included the article um, that walks through the Orwellian language, first of all, that he used, that that it's a good analysis of that, but it also shows all of the things, talks about all the things he got wrong. He used the both times he used, he used stats, he used them wrong. Uh, and it's the opposite of what he said, but he also uh, had tons of material from the candidates that he ignored and he tried to make them look very bad. And I have their correspondence with him tagged in, to a Google drive in, in the document. So the ombudsman has sent it to the people at CBC who are supposed to investigate it. They had 20 working uh, days. Those days are up today. And um, supposedly CBC has standards and ethics, and I know I've read them. And uh, now uh, they may respond, who knows how they're going to respond, but if they respond uh, and don't retract or don't apologize, or if there is no result, then I have advised the candidates to um, file for defamation because it seems to me, uh, based on previous cases, that they can prove that it has not been uh, responsible communication from the journalist and that he has caused harm. Because every time that his article has been shared, um, nasty things have been said about the candidates underneath them in tweets. So I told them to screenshot all of those for evidence. And so I don't think there's any difficulty in proving um, both that he was irresponsible and that he caused harm. Yeah. So if, if they have to go there, I'm sure they'll get a lot of support from the community to pay for the trial. Really? I'm sure. I'm sure that okay. uh, if, if it, you know, if they need support that people will, yeah. So, uh, 
sociologically speaking, and this is just a hypothesis, but I've seen it often enough uh, to be reasonably certain about it without defaming this poor journalist. But he, yeah. he's a part of a system that is going in a certain direction, right? Those Twitter files just came out. Have you been following that? Like, uh, they're, they're, uh, Elon Musk is exposing all the inner workings of how this trust and safety committee is operating. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at how they're operating, they're kind of making things up on the fly. They're kind of ideologically possessed. They're not really excellent people to begin with. And by that, mm -hmm. I don't mean character-wise. I just mean they're not really strategic people. They're not like titans or, or Olympian gods of, of information. They're just kind of these dweebs that ended up in this incredibly powerful position. They right. Grease the not, right hands. Not necessarily legalistic or analytical thinkers either. I no, no, no. But they, they, they're good at getting along and they just kind of nepotist yeah. themselves up into this position. And then they end up being possessed by an ideology and all together, like, let's just say they have to get Trump off of Twitter somehow. And so what they have to do is like, okay, here's here's the here's the process they all believe in this process but because the process won't give them the result they start to change and manipulate the process they start to act in a unethical and perhaps even criminal way but they're even they're not even aware of that anymore so it could be the case that a journalist in a system that we know is captured by a, yeah. a moralistic standard and a, a power structure uh, that is not about merit is not about truth it's about proving your cred or whatever, whatever's motivating that. Yeah. He goes up and he like, almost like the MPC meme is kind of apt here. He's not really thinking himself. He's just, he's running this bad code, producing this bad result. The mm. institution itself probably doesn't want to say that this guy was wrong. I can see that they would try to cover it up or just not say anything. You know, there's a bunch of different tactics that they can use. So then it gets kicked over to the court system. What happens if the court system itself is also captured by that? Because yeah. we know it's kind of going in that direction too. So there would be just, eventually it's just going to become so chaotic. There's hmm. going to be so many mediocre people in power that it's just it's going to be such an inefficient system it's going to be living hell almost yeah i, I do think i think that the, the non-player character uh analogy is pretty apt um i do think that a lot of, like a lot of the professors i knew they're just going through the motions uh and going through the motions of what they thought was right right they actually thought they were doing good and he probably thinks the same way too even though he has uh standards that are written there that he's supposed to go through yeah. um but you know i don't feel i'm not i haven't lost my confidence in the legal system because there was recently uh well I, i've read through some of the cases and i understand uh what has been used in previous cases to show that responsible communication uh wasn't used it's very simple um and whether or not harm can be proved and um that doesn't seem to have been captured uh in the cases that i reviewed and i think recently um, my old editor for Colette, John Kay, won a case recently against the Canadian Hate Network here. So oh. I, I don't believe that they're captured. I think that law okay. here in Canada, for the most part, is still, at least for the, the journalism cases that I've been reading, has, uh, you know, it's pretty clear by the book, um, you know, line by line, what they're, what they're kind of looking for and stuff like that. And they're pretty reasonable. So, um, 
look, maybe CBC will retract or offer an apology or something like that. I doubt it. I doubt it, unfortunately, because then they would literally have to look at, you know, an article he released not long after that and um, uh, all of their work. And that would take some serious soul searching. And I don't think the CBC, even though they, they say they're so concerned about misinformation and um, things like that and uh, trust and integrity in journalism. Um, well, I guess we're going to find out soon uh, yeah. whether or not, uh, but we're not going to let it go. I'm not letting it go. And the candidates are not going to let it go. And there will be more on this. Yeah. Canadian hate network. <laughs> it, it sounds like uh, that they're actually the a network of hate. <laughs> not <trying to laughs> stop hate. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you follow, um, yeah, this is the guy that was running it. I guess they're getting funded by our government. The funding has been since removed, I believe. Oh, okay. But they, um, yeah, they lost this case with John. I don't know. I can't remember the specifics of the case. Um, but they also, um, yeah, the guy that was the head of it, I think, had put a poster up that was supposed to be a hateful poster, but it was actually a poster taken, in, a picture taken in Florida. And he was trying to blame it on the truckers. And John caught him because he had recognized the photo and, you know, the whole thing, they were just um, uh, pretending to be uh, an organization concerned about hate, but they really were uh, pro Antifa. They're pro Antifa. They're pro um, and Antifa has been found uh, actually in that case to be involved in things they shouldn't be. And that came up uh, in the wind. So uh, yeah, so they, they've been taken down a few pegs, so that's good, but they're definitely not operating they have their own kind of um, interests and, and and stuff like that. I don't think they're making Canada any better. <laughs> That's what's happening. <laughs> well, I mean, organizations like that and also the Anti-Defamation League, the guy who's running that is just running roughshod, just calling everybody an anti-Semite, mm. uh, you know, which is just unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I think – I think – I, I just, I really don't know why people play around with racism because it could just get really ugly really quick. But people who are on the good side, the good people are always kind of bringing it up and trying to make it happen and make it happen and accusing it of it all uh, everywhere. And you mean, just, you mean when an event happens in the news, they want to assume the worst? Is that what you're talking about? That, well, that's, that's, no, that's they just, they like, I think it, like Elon Musk is being called an anti-Semite. Or whatever, right? Uh, they're they're calling him uh, signaling all these dog whistles to racists and buddying up with racists and stuff. And they see racism everywhere, but they also use the accusation of racism to affect power or to to rally people against this enemy. Like this is the enemy, this is the enemy, and using racism to do that. I just think it's really bad. I don't know why I brought this up. I was thinking about the hate network and how these bodies that are there to stop hate or whatever, mm -hmm. like trying to do social change, they end up kind of unmasking in a very explicit way the the sociological tactics of shoring up yeah. friend enemy distinction. Like they're actually in, yeah. in certain ways, they're kind of official arms where they get to do that out in the open. Yeah. Purely in order to, to separate the good from the bad, the good from the bad, like, uh, 
at some yeah, point it, they they went through yeah. a couple of years ago they went through and they organized all these youtubers into right wing or not right wing and everybody that ended up in the right wing barrel was just like it didn't even make sense how they could be right wing like are Brett you White's talking about the data and years. society network report that yeah. i wrote about <laughs> you covered I wrote about that, that in yeah okay yeah. yeah, I also covered it. One of my Colette articles covers the um, media studies and communications theories, the mess that was going on there years ago. So, yeah, um, I think for the hate stuff, um, it's really funny. A few things I've noticed. Um, first of all, those those organizations would be really useful if they were setting themselves on de-radicalization. Right. Because there's a psychological process for, uh, you know, de-radicalization. And um, that would be a really, that that is the use of their thing. Otherwise, bias is coming, right? The other thing I've noticed about a lot of these anti-hate groups is they actually are often anti-Semites themselves. <laughs> so I find that when hate is often when people are talking about hate and uh, uh, hate things against people, usually, you know, Jews are like the last two. Um, be stuck up for. And I don't want to confuse that with, you know, people complaining about, uh, you know, political stuff in the Middle East, but it, it, I just mean in general, it's just, it seems to be kind of there yeah. uh, underneath a lot. But yeah, de-radicalization should be the only purpose for these things because yeah. otherwise, well, if um, yeah, I just if, don't trust the maturity of, of, of most people or the, the thinking um, to do these things correctly. Well, they're set up to say that they're going to nominally to solve a problem but in, what they end up doing is not solving the problem just making lists you know just making yeah. lists of people which is the problem so did if they were say lists yeah i did, did say, say lists do you, said... you know that i don't like lists you don't like lists no i don't like lists. why don't you like lists <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, a few years back, UBC creative writing professor thought it would be, you know, a good idea to put Colette writers who are academics and Canada on lists oh, yeah. so that they couldn't get hired. So I don't like lists. <laughs> that. She's still around, that, that woman. I, I don't even, I wouldn't even bother looking. It's just, that is just such a, a cesspool of of insanity but i will say this you know like a, a lot of professors that have been that way you know some people come out of that kind of thing i've actually had matthew sears wrote me an apology i don't know if you remember who matthew sears was i remember that guy did he change because he was yeah, he left twitter, he was he left twitter and he changed look i think you know i think he recognized what the medium can do to people uh and uh that he was being you know kind of you know, he got caught up in it and stuff like that. So I actually got a really, you know, earnest apology from him and uh, hmm. which is nice. But yeah, there's a there's a whole kind of like uh, cesspool of this stuff that, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, that I kind of stay away from now. I, uh, but yeah, I'm sorry to stop you at lists, but I had to. No, I'll, I'll change gears and go back to something I wanted to get clarification on earlier when we were talking about cringe. And you said it disturbs our affect. What does that mean? What is the affect? Is that like a social sensor? And where does that yeah, come so, into play? Yeah, okay. So I might not respond to stimulus, all stimulus, the same way that you do, for example. Um, but being a rural person, I have a certain response to a news article that I read and it talks about a certain class of people in a certain way. And I will, you know, I may even have a visceral reaction to it, right? But not everybody has those same reactions, right? Those reactions are, are very much about your class, your upbringing, 
um, her ideology, her politics. Uh, but the people who do the cringe stuff, the stuff that, that you and I might see as cringe, um, you know, they have, they just have a different one, right? They, it's like, it's different. They believe that they're uh, in this thing, they're doing good. Um, maybe they're also professionally benefiting from it. Um, most of the time they are. Um, most of the time there's an economic benefit. But, uh, you know, judging human nature, nine out of 10 times, the people believe what they're saying, right? So I think that's the fundamental basis of understanding all of this stuff before we, okay. um, yeah. you know. And yeah. do you ever, are you ever tempted by thoughts of fixing things or changing things for the better or is that are you too humble to go in that direction <laughs> um do you mean university the world mean, the oh, west okay, okay. canada i'm pretty humble i'm pretty humble i'd like to think i am but uh so i still um i'm not this semester because our government was so bad at getting international student visas out, like they're so bad at getting everybody's passports out. Um, I didn't have enough students to teach. I teach engineers, communication and research methods. So I do my part in teaching people how to think uh, on my own level, on a personal level. Um, and uh, I make it clear that I don't let anyone know my own personal thoughts about politics or anything like that. And I teach them how to see things from different things. So on that level, I do, I do that. Um, I also have started my Substack report, which was, you know, a few years in the, the building and, and thinking about as well. Um, you know, I surveyed a lot of people on uh, Twitter to find out what they thought was missing. And it was the same stuff that I thought was missing. And what, what um, stuff was missing? <laughs> Well, first of all, being curious, um, um, actually wanting to know uh, things at a, at a deeper level, not just assuming, you know, that these people are bad guys or those people are bad guys, um, but, you know, just also, um, I kind of want to keep it um, at a personal, personable level, like not a lot of no smarm or snark. Um, so my CBC piece is like it's tight it may be sharp <laughs> uh, but it's not um you know i'm not personally weighing in on it and i'm not trying to be snarky and i think that i i gave information to parents in ontario uh who would want to know this information that cbc wouldn't give so okay. uh i guess rapport is my attempt uh besides the fact that i'm having other writers write for it too uh rapport is my attempt to do media criticism to make okay. it better. So my pieces will be mostly media criticism. I am doing, um, with another professor, Gordiano, I'm doing, uh, I noticed that our press had called the truckers so-called Freedom Convoy, and that's the first time it was unprecedented. They put so-called before uh, the convoy's name because it was almost as if they didn't want to weigh in on it. Like they really don't like that word freedom, right? <laughs> and so I found out that it was unprecedented, but I'm also collecting uh, the data now and uh, tracing where it began because obviously it was an editorial newsroom decision and it funneled uh, oh. through the newsrooms. And so I'm gonna have a data piece on that uh, with that other professor. And then I'm gonna write a larger public piece for it. 
Um, so, but it's through the differential treatment of okay. social protests and movements. And uh, that in itself says something about our media, right? Yeah, okay. All right. Interesting. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So-called, so you said that so-called is unprecedented. Is it because it's informal or because it's taking an editorial stand? Right. So so-called has two meanings, right? So they're almost the opposite of each other, right? So, so well, so-called actually, so-called in the sense of this is uh, what this unheard of, you know, group calls themselves or not commonly known, right? Once it's been in the news, it's commonly known, right? So the other meaning is, of course, that you don't agree with their their term or the, the way they, they've referred to themselves. And that's how it played out here. Um, but I also run it up against a database of, uh, you know, I have a control group of the New York Times use of so-called um, and uh, just making sure that there's no other definitions um, that are coming, that have come into play. Um, but yeah, so it's going to be uh, substantive in terms of data and uh, it's going to look through time a bit as well. But yeah, I mean, this is, uh, as for recent news and recent protests that we would have heard of in terms of Black Lives Matter and uh, Indigenous stuff or environmental stuff, this is unprecedented. Now, this is not to say that previously, uh, going back further, much further, that, that the press hasn't uh, been uh, awful to social movements, because they have, and I, there's examples of that as well. Um, civil rights movements, um, yeah. the media was often very conservative. And yeah. so one has to ask, you know, why, why truckers, why? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so it's basically a, a real uh, calling out of their standards and their, their, their practices and how they uh, do things differentially and really kind of like putting, huh. putting a point on that. What's something that, that you're excited about? Uh, on the on the landscape, like developments, changes, something that looks promising. Do you have any things um, that are cool that you're seeing emerge? <laughs> sure. So uh, I'm just, I'm very excited about rapport, um, and I'm hoping that I you know become a, a media critic, basically from Canada through this. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited about having a lot of Canadian content on it and talking to Canadians from different parts of Canada and getting them to write. Um, but also I'm uh, like I said, I've been filming for my documentary about my dad, uh, about him dying of. Uh, an opioid overdose. I found him through DNA site. I didn't know who he was. And, you know, his father died, his brother died. They were working in the car manufacturing industry. I have a bunch of half siblings. Uh, a few of them are addicts. Uh, I just recently met them this summer. And uh, so a real, uh, it's going to be a real deep dive into uh, the opioid ec epidemic in Canada, which really has only been traced since 2016. Um, how it became so bad here, why it's been ignored for so long. Um, and, you know, he was my dad who I never got to meet. So the importance of fathers um, and how that's affected also my siblings who went into foster care. I have siblings. 
and uh, just, you know, what is it that's really, uh, what's, what's lost in society? What's the, asking some questions about what's lost in society? What is really like happening? Well, Where's all the despair coming from? Yeah. Would you expect that to be public? That's a good question. <laughs> so I am uh, hoping to finish it off in the, after the fall because I'll have more money because I will definitely have, uh, I should definitely have courses at McGill. Um, and so part of that money is to help me travel to uh, Oshawa where my dad lived and to uh, talk to uh, car manufacturers and talk to the, uh, the clinics there. Uh, I basically did all the stuff from Cape Breton when I was home in the summer. Yeah. And now I have to do the, uh, the stuff that's in Ontario. And, you know, uh, so then there's going to be an editing phase. And uh, my friend, uh, my good friend, Christina, who runs the Lost Boys uh, uh, podcast and Substack, she's, uh, she's uh, worked on films before and she's uh, helping me with that. So it's been fun. Sounds like an important piece of uh, media. Yeah, well, I think I think it's going to, and I think I mean on many levels, you know, uh, there's the crisis itself. Uh, there's the fact that you know it's really the government has really not really tracked it or cared much about it, and hasn't really been mentioned in 2016. And you know, there's a lot of um, policies that aren't necessarily helpful. You know, when I talk to the former addicts, like my friends, I lost quite a few friends growing up to it. Um, one of my good friends who got away from it went into the army and he uh, actually have a recorded uh, podcast of him talking about him, our friends, and how he got out of it, you know, and I think one of the important things is understanding how people get out of it. And that's not really talked very much. And he was in Alberta and Alberta has, you know, um, unlike BC, who has just is going to decriminalize amounts of fentanyl and uh, all kinds of opioids and stuff like that, thinking, you know, it's going to help. But really, you know, if you talk to a drug addict, they'll tell you that that's not going to help. It just makes it, you know, they're not just not going to go to jail for that amount. They're just going to end up dead. Um, and it just continues the cycle, right? Um, but in Alberta, they have um, a program called Sentence to Recovery, right? So if you're caught with the crime that, you know, you can choose rehabilitation, right? And so uh, these are very different approaches. And, you know, the, you know, safe clinics are one thing to keep people alive, but they don't fight, they don't help people you know, get back on their feet again. And so a lot of, unfortunately, academics and, uh, and stuff uh, think that, you know, these things are the holy grail and they're, you know, um, they're just great. But no, I mean, kind of focusing on them the way that they do um, makes it uh, just kind of be a continuous cycle. And so as usual, academics don't really... <laughs> <laughs> are not really this even if they're academic experts in it they don't really know right you don't ask an addict who's an addict they'll tell you they want more drugs you ask an addict who's recovered right yeah. they'll tell you what they need to recover i need to cough okay <laughs> be, i'm gonna step out of frame yeah <laughs> That was a good one. Sorry. It's like a furball. I think it's this tea I've been drinking. It's drying out my throat. What kind of tea are you drinking? Some green tea or something? Uh, it's like this chai spice tea. <laughs> oh, is it like Lipton? I think I've had that before. Uh, no, it's uh, Oregon chai. It's a tea mix. Okay. 
Okay. But it's got a lot of tannins in it, so. It okay, so that is rough on the vocal cords. A little bit. You should be protecting those. I know. I shouldn't be doing it. It ruins recording. So don't too. feel bad. I'm in the like a WeWorks phone booth. I I, I figured as much. You figured it. <laughs> and it's because my French bulldog is so loud. Like he All would right. bark if we're in a yeah. So yeah. At least he loves you. Right. He does love me. His name's Louis. Oh. Yeah. Do does um we can end on something frivolous, trivial? Sure. Sure. Puff PC. Is there anything trivial? <laughs> is there, uh, do, yeah, do, do you are you, do you allow yourself to take anything trivial? And what's the what's the most frivolous uh, luxury of your livelihood? Oh, I don't know. Do you cook I, soups? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I like to travel. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to the Colette Social. I don't know if you are. Are you not going to that? Where's that? Oh, in New Orleans. Oh wow! Okay. I like food, so I have never been to New Orleans, and so I am very excited about the food, and so I'm going to go up to the social on January 7th and uh, stay and enjoy the city and learn about the French as well because, you know, uh, I have some Acadian ancestors, and so I want to understand the Cajun, which is Acadian, and just kind of how the the language and the food and the flavors. Yeah. So I'm, I'm big on food and, and I like to travel. Are I'm going to take the train all the way back. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take the train from new Orleans all the way back to New York. To Chicago. And then, yeah. Okay. Wow. All the way to New York. And then I'm going to basically get off there for a night, see some friends in New York. It's almost my birthday. So I do something. And then I'm going to fly out to the United States to Montreal. Oh, wow. So, Are you good at French travel. speaking it? Um, I can speak it. I write it better than I speak it because everybody in Canada learns French in school. But in Nova Scotia, we uh, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on spoken. So my written was very well. And the other problem with Montreal is that people will switch out of politeness. So you don't really get to practice it. Oh, okay. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I can. And I understand. Fine. Well, it... Long time in coming, so thank you for finally gracing my uh, channel with your presence. Three years and two days. Three years, yeah. two days. Maybe yeah. in another three years, you'll you'll maybe. get back to me on this. Maybe or maybe, <laughs> or maybe depending on what happens with CBC, maybe we could come back with Shannon and Chanel. Oh yeah, totally. You Have like a group that? therapy set. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I like having yeah. A, <laughs> multiple women talking over my head. About uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's hope it's not let's hope it's a celebration and not a therapy session well yeah we'll see we'll see i mean yeah. these these systems are so interesting but um it's great to see people actually fighting against them and doing work to kind of change the course of community in a way it's it, it well you help. i had to right like I'll, I'll, like the, the when i read that article that he had written about them it made me sick to my stomach yeah. huh. and and it took that i was just like okay and i mean what i wrote was incredibly thorough so i mean if i if something makes me angry enough yeah i'm gonna have to stand up for humanistic values yeah yeah hopefully i, I don't make you angry though i probably no. wouldn't mind an article uh, about myself somewhere <laughs> totally tearing me apart but you know when can no I, no 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 don't be afraid don't be afraid I won't. I'll, I'll stay here. You can stay. <laughs> okay. Terry Newby, I'm going to end the recording. Thank you so much for joining. Bye. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.